Thank you all for leading us in worship. As I mentioned earlier, we're glad you're here. Uh, if you're a visitor, we want to kind of let you know what, what it looks like. We always start by praying for another church. And um, we had a little confusion last week, and I, I wanted to clear it up. So I prayed for Pastor John Kay at Cavanaugh United Methodist Church. And I got an email from him Monday morning. So over the years, we, we've always made it a point, Ben started this, and it was for the better part of a decade and a half, we pray for another church and another pastor, and we do so mainly because the Bible tells us to. We, we, we want to pray for uh, leaders, and we want to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ because we're all on the same team. And so what we found is it's really helpful in praying for other churches because it kind of fights against that spirit of competition that sometimes unnecessarily exists between churches. We should want all of the local churches to be doing well, and that's why we pray in that direction. So uh, over the years, from time to time, we've had some calls sort of like, well, why did you pray for me? Do you think something's wrong? It's like, well, no, no, we, we just want God to bless you and your church, and, and usually they're good conversations, but it's such an anomaly for whatever reason that you get calls like that. Then there's other times where maybe the prayer is confusing. So last week, I prayed, Lord, I pray for Pastor John Kay as he leads there, leads like a leader. And I think that was heard by someone as, as he leaves there, and so the email I got Monday was, uh, unless you know something I don't, I don't plan on going anywhere. I was like, what are you talking about? I just prayed for you. He's like, oh, I think there was confusion. So we had a funny pastoral banter back and forth uh, via email. But um, we're going to pray this morning for FBC Commerce and for the Pastor Chris Myers and his wife Kathy. And I just want to let you all know ahead of time, there's nothing wrong with <laughs> Pastor Chris Myers or FBC Commerce. We're just going to pray for them. So I just want to clear that up before we start. Let's pray and then we'll dig into Psalm 28. Lord, you are very good to us. Um, we are privileged to be here. Um, thank you for caring about the health of your local church. Lord, as we have done every week for many years, we want to pray for another local church in the area. And so we do lift up FBC Commerce to you and Pastor Chris Myers and his wife, Kathy. First, I pray for their marriage. I'm just, I pray that they're enjoying you together, uh, that they're living together in an understanding way so that their prayers wouldn't be hindered, as the word tells us. Lord, I pray that um, their time uh, together with you is, is, is blessing others in their body. I pray that as he preaches this morning, that he would be filled with the Spirit. And I pray that the congregation at FBC Commerce would be blessed and encouraged and built up in Christ. I pray that you would um, help them to be um, a bright light in their community and to bless many with the gospel. Lord, we pray that you would guide us this morning. We pray that... As we go into a holiday week where it's easy to be very distracted when we're supposed to be thankful and then we make a quick transition from being thankful to being fairly entitled, Lord, it's a, it's a crazy week ahead. And so as we have sort of a sane moment here to consider Psalm 28, I pray that you would bless us in it. We love you and we praise you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This is part two of a three-part series. And last week we began to consider how Christians are to give thanks. We spent Eight weeks in Ephesians, considering what does the Christian household look like, and this is really kind of a continuation of that, and like what does the Christian household look like when it comes time to give thanks to our Lord? How does it differ from the world? And to understand how Psalm 28 helps us in that, we have to understand the context of Psalm 28, and the context of Psalm 28 is one where David is being pursued by his enemies, 
And the situation is very dire. It's a very desperate situation. It's a bit of an emergency. Look at verses 1 through 2 with me, and quickly we can see what's going on there. To you, O Lord, I call my rock. Be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. He's worried that he'll literally be dragged away in judgment because death is so near him. He can feel it in his bones. He says, hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. The main points that we considered last week that help us as we go into the the next few points this week were, one, that the, the source of our hope is the aim of our song. The reason that David was able at the end of the song to, give a, give, to sing a song and give thanks to the Lord was because the Lord was his hope. And so the source of our hope will always be the aim of our song. And so if you're not singing th- songs of thanks to the Lord, it may mean your hope is elsewhere. The second thing we considered and the third thing is that if God is not your only hope, like God's not just one name on a long call of an emergency call list, if he's not your only hope, then he's not going to be your greatest comfort in trial because you're not looking to him. You're looking elsewhere. You're looking wherever your hope is. And so for us, for God to be our hope, we trust his promises. God's given us lots of promises. He's not just our hope because we hope he'll do whatever we want him to do. We hope he'll do what he says he will do. So we have to trust his promises, and David models that for us here. So this week, our focus is going to be on verses 3 through 5. So look with me at verses 3 through 5. Do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil, who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. Give to them according to the work, according to their work, and according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the work of his hands. He will tear them down and build them up no more. Remember, our goal is to consider how followers of God are to give thanks rightly and honestly at first glance. It may look like verses 3 through 5 are quite the opposite of giving thanks, as David is clearly calling down curses upon his enemies. So we have to make sense of this. How does this help us as David is cursing his enemies, asking God to bring down the curses? So I hope you're encouraged this morning as we go into Thanksgiving week. It's, I just find it humorous that we're talking about how to deal with our enemies because many of you are going into that enemy territory known as the in-laws house and you can know that, that, that your church has prepared you for such a moment as that through the consideration of our enemies this morning. It's humorous timing but quite fitting I think as we look at it. Before asking what any passage says to us, we have to just see what it says. Before asking, what does this mean for me? We just have to say, what does it mean in its context as it is written? And here what we see is this. David David is in a dire circumstance where his enemies are closing in on him and they desire to murder him, to take his life. His enemies are workers of evil who are sly and sneaky and um, they don't regard the works of the Lord. Godless people who are deceitful, who are pursuing godly people. These are the enemies that we're talking about here. So David has real enemies, and we have to see that there are real enemies, and we have to see who they are, and they're wicked. They have wicked hearts. They have wicked thoughts. They have wicked plans. They're deceitful in their schemes. They make peace. They speak peace with neighbors while they're really just scheming to do more evil 
to the godly, to frankly, the king of Yahweh's people, who is David. Godless people who are deceitful as they pursue the godly. And before getting to the end of the psalm where he gives thanks, he here takes a moment to include in his psalm in verses three through five curses where he's asking God to bring down bad things upon the, he- the heads of his enemies who have done bad things. He's saying, God, give them what they deserve. Give them t- according to the work of their hands. Psalms like these are called imprecatory psalms. You might write that in your notes. There's a lot of studying you can do on the imprecatory psalms. Their purpose is to pray against or invoke curses upon their enemies. And this is not the saltiest of the imprecatory psalms. There are others where you read it and say, how can he pray that for his enemies? How can he say, you know, uh, cut off their offspring and dash them against rocks and things like that? This is not the saltiest of them, but it gives us a taste of a guy who is a man after God's own heart who is calling down curses on the heads of his enemies. Imprecatory psalms. So if the psalms teach us how to worship, then this psalm shows us at least a few things. The first one is this. You must continue to worship even in the midst of your enemies. That's the first thing we see this morning. You must continue to worship even in the midst of your enemies. It takes only a few minutes on Facebook to understand that Christians sometimes don't know what to do with their enemies. Some of y'all are like, yes, and some of y'all are looking down because you know that maybe you've had quite the week of battle and war on Facebook. But Christians sometimes don't know what to do with our enemies. Sometimes, sometimes, it seems like we make too many people our enemies, when maybe some of them really aren't. What David shows us here is that if they're enemies of God, they're enemies of ours, but that doesn't mean that everyone who disagrees with us is our enemy. So we need to be more specific when we say enemy, and when we say enemy, that helps us to know how to treat someone. So here, we can know that sometimes we're not good at knowing what to do with our enemies. Currently, it seems like Christians are all too often infatuated with destroying others with their arguments. I see video after video after video, so-and-so destroys liberal moron, or something like that. And it's like this theme, and, and you know, everyone wants to do the mic drop thing, and everyone's mic dropping, no one's mic dropping. It's, it's really getting out of hand, in my opinion. The problem is this, when we're distracted by our enemies, we're distracted from God. That's something that we're seeing from Dave here. If, if David was to be distracted by his enemies, he would not have his hands toward God. So if we're distracted by our enemies, we are going to definitely be distracted from God. Even when the enemies are coming at us, we continue to worship God. And this is illustrated in these few verses um, by the hands. Howard Hendricks, as he teaches us how to study the Bible, he's one of the best professors. He wrote a book called Living by the Book, How to Study the Bible. And one of the things that he says is, is uh, uh, pay attention when things are repeated because they're usually repeated on purpose. And here we see hands in verse 2, we see hands in verse 4, and we see hands in verse 5. And so that's a theme. And so really we can understand what's going on here by watching the hands. The workers of evil are doing evil work with their evil hands. That's one thing. The workers of evil are doing evil work with their evil hands. That's a reality. So the follower of God doesn't here have to act like that's not happening or just sort of play like it doesn't matter. No, it really matters, and it's affecting David greatly, and he's crying out to his Lord. 
And so the workers of evil with their evil hearts are doing work with their evil hands. But notice that David's hands in verse 2, his hands are toward the most holy sanctuary. So his hands are toward God. He's crying out in an act of submission saying, God, I need your help and I humble myself before you. And frankly, I'm going to reach as high as I can to get to that most holy place that I so desire because this place here is not good right now. So his hands are towards God, but he's, while he's doing that, he's aware of the evil work that's being done by evil hands. Why does he do that? I think David does that because he's rightly regarding the work of God's hands in the midst of what his enemies are doing. So David has his hands towards the Lord while the workers of evil are doing evil work with their hands, but his hands are towards the Lord because he can see the work of God's hands. David is the one who proclaimed day to day, teaches us something. Night to night reveals knowledge. There's speech that's poured out all the time. He looks at the sky and he sees things going on. And so I think what's happening here is that David is rightly seeing what God's hands are doing, and that helps him to worship, even when he's in the midst of his enemies who are doing evil, with their hands. I mean, the reality is, he couldn't call them out if, if he wasn't. He, like, you can't call someone out on doing something if you're doing the same thing. Like, sometimes when we pray at meals, so we'll pray, and then the prayer will end, and maybe my son Henry, maybe, will say, Hattie had her eyes open. Well, son, how did you know Hattie's eyes were open? Did you see it with your eyes that were open? You can't accuse someone of doing something that you yourself are guilty of. So David here can't accuse them of not regarding the works of the, of the Lord's hands because he is regarding the works of the Lord's hands. Rather than getting distracted and focused upon his enemies, David keeps his eyes on the hands of the Lord. David in that moment could have literally recalled a myriad of different things that the Lord has done. He could have recalled how the Lord brought Samuel to his house and anointed him. He could have recalled how the Lord took him from the fields when he was watching the flocks when he already felt close to the Lord while he was out in those fields. He could have literally recalled and considered God's hand how every single time David went to battle, he was victorious. He could have recalled the fights that he had with the bears and the fights that he had with the lions where if they would raise a paw at him, he would grab them by the beard and smack them because the Lord was with him. Even when a giant mocked God's people and left them all trembling in fear, David was aware of the works of the Lord's hands and it affected what he did with his hands. You must continue to worship God even in the midst of your enemies. So I would ask you this morning... Are you aware enough of the works of the Lord's hands to be able to worship him even when others have set themselves against you? Even when you have enemies, even when enemies are pressing in on you, are you aware enough of the works of the Lord's hands to be able to worship him in the midst of your enemies? Which brings us to our second point. To truly entrust yourself to God, you must entrust your enemies to God. Do you realize that? When we're talking about hope, we're saying my, my hope is not just partially in the Lord, but completely in the Lord. So what that means is that I, as a worshiper of Yahweh, I am giving myself entirely to God. I am entrusting myself to him. And for you to rightly, truly, genuinely, wholly, completely entrust yourself to God, one of the steps is that you must also entrust your enemies to God. 
Remember, the enemies are real. They're doing real evil work with their real evil hands. And you entrust them to the Lord. Wholehearted worshipers believe that God will one day judge the world. And for those who are in Christ, Christ's righteous perfection will be counted as yours. That's why the gospel is called good news. Most of us sitting here know why it's good news because we have reckoned with our sin. We have seen how we are separated from God in our sin and we've confessed that sin and we've embraced Christ as our Savior and as our Lord and as our treasure. So in the day of judgment, when Christ returns, Christ's righteous perfection will be counted as ours as we are in Christ. But for those who are not in Christ, they're called enemies of God. It's helpful if, if you're the kind of person who who feels like you just have a lot of enemies or you're always in it with someone or you're always, someone's always in it with you, just consider, for, for us, if they're not enemies of God, they're not our enemies. That's our complete identity. So be careful who you call your enemies. Here, when we find genuine enemies like David has, we entrust them to the Lord the way that we have entrusted ourselves to the Lord. And as this psalm says, they will be dragged off in the day of judgment and into eternal separation from God, eternal torment, and eternal suffering. That's a reality for those who are enemies of God. And that's a reality we should be aware of. David actually says, it's interesting, it's, he's, he's crying out to God, he's saying, God, give them what they deserve. Give to them according to the works of their hands. Give to them what they have coming. And then he says, it's like he goes from talking to God and is just, he goes to talking to his peers. And he says, because they do not regard the works of the Lord and the works of his hands, God will tear them down and build them up no more. It's almost like an instructional moment in the psalm where he goes from up here to his peers saying, this is what God is going to do. This means that David doesn't have to get bogged down and getting, on getting even and tearing down his enemies. He knows that the Lord will take care of his enemies, so he doesn't have to take care of them. He doesn't have to take on vengeance. We have lots of superhero sort of comic things, and one of the things that they do often is, you know what, they're going to take vengeance upon themselves. They're going to take revenge into their own hands, and it's sort of a, a, a fun story for a lot of people to see those who are going to battle against the unrighteous and battle against the injustice and take it into their, their hands. But the Christian says, no, our God has taken that into his hands. And in fact, we don't have to focus on that. We can be aware of it, but our Lord has taken that into his hands. He will bring vengeance. He will bring judgment, and it's important for us to know that so that we don't do the wrong thing with our hands. David entrusts himself to God and entrusts the enemies to God so that he can rightly focus on being the newly anointed king of Yahweh's people. <coughs> the coming judgment of Yahweh gives hope to us because it's a promise that he's given us. God promises he'll come back, and that's the source of our hope is those promises. So there's a sense in knowing God will come back and he will judge the wicked and he will forgive those who are in Christ. And so because of that, that's a comfort to us. That is part of our hope. We can entrust our enemies to him knowing that if they are his enemies, he will judge them in the end. As long as God has enemies, God's people will have enemies. We need to stop acting surprised. We need to stop acting like we don't know what to do. We need to figure out from these verses and from others, what we are to do, and I think the Psalms continue to guide us in that. The question we might consider this morning is, are there enemies of God who are distracting you from God? Enemies that are close or enemies that are maybe just politically 
Do you have any enemies that are distracting you from God? Do you have enemies that you need to entrust to the Lord? That would be a fitting question for us to ask this morning. But the bigger question is this. So are we or are we not allowed to curse our enemies? Right? Are we allowed to curse our enemies in the way that David did? This is where things get a little tricky. And this is where your pastor has to be very honest about how his week has gone. I was pretty fired up at the beginning of the week as I considered these passages. I'm one of those people who really hates injustice. I hate injustice. If I see someone picking on someone, I want to make that person cry. That's the kind of person I am. Like, oh, you're picking on that person? I'm going to make you cry in front of all these people. That, that's my go-to. I don't do that, just so you know. But like inwardly, the, 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 the conversation going on in my head and heart is, shame that person. Get even. Injustice is bad. Smite them. I hate injustice. I hate seeing people get what they don't deserve. I hate seeing other people get what someone else deserves. I hate it. I hate seeing people oppressed. I hate seeing people victimized. So when I read these verses about evil people getting what they deserve and calling down the thunder from heaven, I thought, now this is a sermon that I'm excited about preaching. I thought about the very wicked workers of evil all throughout the world. I thought, I thought about the wicked workers of ISIS, of Boko Haram. I thought about the things going on in Africa right now. I thought about the wickedness that exists all over the world. And many of these wicked organizations that they work together and they scheme and they plan and it's their jobs to do evil to innocent people. And I thought, yes, let's bring down the thunder from God. I thought about those who behead Christians and enjoy it. Those who seek to wipe Christians from the, faith, the face of the earth. I thought about those who harm children. I thought about those who beat their wives. I thought about those who traffic human beings. I can't think of anything more despicable than trafficking human beings, enslaving someone who is a human being created in the image of God for financial gain. Is there anything more wicked? I thought about all the arrogant workers of evil who smugly set themselves against God and his designs and his purposes, and they're loud about it, and they're boisterous about it, and they trumpet about it. And I thought, yes, let's call down the thunder. I think this will make us all feel better. You have not because you ask not, so let's ask for some curses. That's where I was on Monday, a little bit into Tuesday, and a dab of Wednesday. But then I started digging, and I kept digging. And I don't know if I've ever put in more work on a sermon that doesn't actually get shared in the sermon, but God took me on a journey through Old Covenant, New Covenant, Things having to do with uh, the differences between the two. And um, I started comparing the Old Covenant and the New Covenant under Christ. And I noticed something. I noticed that there, there were many times where God would draw on the prophetic realities in the Psalms and in Isaiah of these imprecatory Psalms. But he, he would leave out the part where he curses the people. Like it would be clear that this is a fulfillment of the psalm where they gave him wine and gall and, and he was suffering on the cross. And in the moment that he's suffering on the cross, if we're, if we're reading along in this old covenant, we're saying, okay, this is the part where he calls down the thunder, but he didn't do it on the cross, did he? And frankly, it bothered me. 
because I was really excited about calling down the thunder. I noticed that though these imprecatory psalms were fitting for David, it seemed like, as I kept reading, that they were less fitting for followers of Christ. Like, I really was like, hey, happy Thanksgiving. Here's a how-to on how to curse your enemies biblically. (laughs) But as I figured out, worked through the how-to, what I kept seeing was, um, something doesn't feel right. What I'm seeing over here, I'm not seeing over here. There's differences between the Old and the New Covenant, and those differences are profound. So rather than taking you through the crazy journey, I just want to take you to a couple of examples of what I found. And the first one is in Luke 22. So turn to Luke 22. We've got three passages we're going to turn to on this third point that's a little more complicated than the first two. The first one is we worship in the midst of our enemies. The second one is that if we entrust ourselves to the Lord rightly, we're also entrusting our enemies to the Lord. But then there's this third point that's going to take a little bit more work. Luke 22. Um, Our church spent a number of years in the book of Hebrews. Pastor Ben preached through Hebrews for, I don't know, I think it was 20, 25 years. And um, there we found that Jesus was the mediator of a new covenant that made the old one obsolete. It's one of the main big points that we learned about in Hebrews is that Jesus is the mediator of this new covenant that makes the old one obsolete. And what we learned was that the old one didn't become obsolete by Jesus exploding it or just completely abolishing it, but by fulfilling it, by bringing things to their fullness that were not in their fullness in the old covenant before Jesus. They were shadows of what was going to happen, but it wasn't there yet. But when Jesus came on board, when Jesus came to earth, things completely changed. And this new covenant made the old one obsolete as he fulfilled it. Look at Luke 22, verse 14. It says, And when the hour came, he, Jesus, reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. This Passover had been something that had been going on for uh, many, many, many years. But it was different with Jesus. For I tell you, I will not eat uh, this until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So Jesus is saying, this is a special moment because we're going to take this supper together. And as we take this supper together, this is the last time I'm going to take it until I take it again with you in eternity. This is the last time I'm going to take it until I return to bring you home and establish the new heavens and the new earth. And it says, and he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you. That from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So there's this reality that Jesus is speaking of, the return. And with the return comes the judgment. So he's speaking of the judgment that will happen to those who are enemies of Christ. Then he says, and he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This is an important part of Scripture because it shows both the coming judgment and the realities of a new covenant. And as as the supper is being taken, he brings them in to explain what's going on. 
Here we see that Jesus confirms that the kingdom of God will be fulfilled. So there is clearly a new covenant, but judgment is still coming. So today, as Christians, there is a future sense in which we can look at these imprecatory psalms and say, yes, God will absolutely judge all of his enemies, but something changes in the new covenant in the way that we consider our enemies. Yes, God will do that. We read these imprecatory psalms. Yes, he will return. It's a guaranteed thing for Christians. We don't slightly hope he will return. All of our hope is in the fact that he will return and he will bring us in and he will judge those who have set themselves against him. That's what he'll do with his enemies. But that's not what we do with ours. Our movement towards our enemies is supposed to be filled with the hope of Christ. If you were excited with me about calling down the thunder, this is where I rain on your parade. Our movement towards all of our enemies is to be filled with the hope of Christ. See, this is a little later on in the story in Luke. If, if we kind of trace back a few steps to Luke 9, we can see some previous conversations that were had. And Luke 9, turn there, please, is a great example of people walking in the old covenant who are learning how to walk in the new covenant. And so there's some remnants of old covenant, and now they're learning how to walk in what Christ would have for them. And it says in Luke 9, uh, 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he, Jesus, sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? And Jesus said, yeah, bring on the curses. No, he didn't say that. They said, do you want us, Lord, do you want us to bring down the curses? Lord, do you want us to call fire from heaven? Because we know that our God will consume these people who have set themselves against you. And Jesus does this. He turned and rebuked them. It was no longer fitting for them to do that. The new covenant, Christ, the love of Christ was changing things. And so they were still operating as they knew to operate. It seemed completely fitting to them. But Jesus says, no, I rebuke you. And they simply went on to the next village. It says in some of your, um, the notes on the bottom where you, you have the little footnotes, it says, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man came not to destroy people's lives, but to save them. Jesus is indicating, whether that footnote is a part of the scripture or not, Jesus is for sure indicating there is opportunity for people to be saved. So they're wanting to call down the curses on this this village of Samaritans, and Jesus is saying no, and he rebukes them. These disciples were learning from Jesus about the differences between the Old Covenant and the New. So rather than calling down curses, as would have been fitting for their previous way of life, Jesus rebukes them. And look what Jesus says just a short time before that in Luke 6. So we can kind of trace these steps back, and we go back to Luke 6, verse 27. Jesus has already told them these things. 
when they're trying to call down the curses, he has already said to them, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who persecute you, and pray for those who abuse you. So when we ask this question, which is it? Do I call down curses on my enemies? Do I call down the curses or do I bless them and pray for them and love them? And here it seems like Jesus is saying something very important to us. He's saying, don't let someone else's injustice lead you into unrighteousness. Don't let someone else's injustice, it will always be there, don't let someone else's injustice lead you into unrighteousness. So the third point this morning, the truth for Christians who are under the new covenant in Christ, is we no longer curse our enemies. We love them. We no longer curse our enemies. We love them. That's why we can worship in the midst of our enemies, because we love them. That's why we entrust them to the Lord, because the Lord has called us to love them. You can almost hear the Lord saying, I know that they have hurt you. I know that they have made your life miserable, but entrust them to me so that you can love them. Entrust those enemies to me so that you can bless them. Entrust those enemies to me so that you can do good to those who are abusing you. This is not of this world. No one would ever say, this is a great idea according to the ways of our world. This is from somewhere else. This never would have been a standard for us if Christ had not come and done this for us already. You'll never be able to love someone with whom you would prefer vengeance and curses. Some of y'all have deep wounds, sometimes from parents, sometimes from family members, sometimes from friends. And those are your friends. Those are your family. They're not even necessarily enemies of God. And it's hard. It's hard to work through the pain of that stuff. It's hard when someone tells you your whole life that you're of little value or you're worthless. It's hard when the ones who are supposed to love you treat you poorly. And those are the people we call family sometimes. But there's this truth that's just jumping off the page here that you will never be able to love someone with whom you would prefer vengeance and curses. It's just not possible. You can't have both. I kind of thought at the beginning of the week, I think we can hold on to both. I think, I think we can love our enemies, but it's okay to curse them. No, you can't. You can't hold on to both because it'll consume your heart. It'll affect you. It'll bring bitterness. That's a root that goes deep and it defiles many, many people. We have to entrust them to the Lord. Vengeance is his. Your revenge does not matter anymore because you are in Christ. For the New Covenant Christian, things have changed when it comes to our enemies. And the major thing that has changed is that our enemies have a chance to repent and follow Jesus. Turn to Romans 5, because without Romans 5, this is hard to make sense of. A major thing that has changed in this New Covenant is that enemies of God have a chance to no longer be enemies of God. I'm going to read 11 verses so we make sure we have this context. Romans 5 verse 1 says, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. So peace with God should have an impact on how you view your enemies. 
Because you have peace with God, and they can't upset that. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. There's hope again. There's rejoicing. You know there's gladness and giving thanks. All these things are fitting for the worshiper. Not only that, but we rejoice even in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. And then look at verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Everyone in this room was at one point or is still an enemy of God. And that's when he died for you. That's when he sent his son for you. That's when the greatest sacrifice that was ever made was made for you. He didn't love the lovable. He loved those who were quite unlovable because they were his enemies. We were enemies. And so as we're saying, okay, how do I, how do I love my enemies and bless those who abuse me? Because that is what God has done for us in Christ. While we were weak, while we were ungodly, while we were still sinners, while we were still his enemies, God showed us love not by giving us what we deserve. He didn't call down curses on us. He didn't bring the thunder. He didn't give to us according to the work of our hands. Thank God he did not give to us according to the work of our hands. But rather he showed us love by giving us his son. That's our motivation for loving our enemies. And I might say it's quite the motivation. If it's hard, of course it's hard. But do you have the motivation you need seeing what God has done for us in Christ while we were his enemies? That's a heart issue if you still want to call down curses on your enemies. That's a, your heart is redeemed. Your heart is made new. It's no longer a block of stone, but it's flesh, and it receives the word. And I pray that we could receive it this morning as we're called to show love to our enemies because he showed us love by reconciling us to himself through Christ. You see, David was a type of Christ. What he spoke of was a shadow of things to come, a shadow of the new covenant. And if David were to sing Psalm 28 today, I'm going to go out on a limb here. If David were to sing Psalm 28 today, I think it would sound something like this. God, my hands are towards you. I think the first two verses would be almost identical. I cry out to you. You are my only hope. In Christ, you are my full hope. In Christ, I have everything I could ever need. But God, I have real enemies. And I think at that point, if David were singing this psalm, on this side of Christ and in the new covenant, I think that David would say something like this. Father, forgive them. 
for they know not what they do. I don't think there would be any curses. I think it would sound more like Christ did on the cross. Father, forgive them. I think he would show love to those enemies in this different setting. I think he would say, I pray for my enemies, knowing that there's a chance that by your grace they might repent of their sin and receive Christ as their Lord and as their Savior and as their treasure. I think he would pray, Lord, use my kindness toward them to draw them to you. Help me to love those who persecute me. Help me to bless those, even those who abuse me. Help me to act toward my enemies the way that you acted toward us in Christ when we were still your enemies. The only reason that Jesus has not come back yet is that there are some who are his but don't know it yet. And if we spend our time distracted by our enemies, made bitter by our enemies, if we spend our time eager for revenge, the gospel is not rightly going forward in the small window that we have right now for the gospel to go forward. Everyone you engage, enemy or not, is someone who might belong to God. In, in the gospels, it talks about the wheat and the tares, and, and the disciples at one point said, should we just gather up all the wheat, all the weeds, and throw them in the furnace? And he says, no, that's not your job. You'll screw that up. You're not allowed to go saved, not saved, saved, not saved. You don't know. So what you have is an opportunity, even when you engage an enemy, to love them, to bless them, to encourage them, to seek to do good to them. And in doing so, you show the love of Christ in a way that will baffle people. In doing so, you show the love of Christ in a way that doesn't make sense to the world. And they'll say, why is this happening? When you turn the other cheek, that doesn't make sense to the world. When, when you give more to those who are taking from you, that doesn't make sense to the world. Because this world needs to be redeemed by Christ. And he redeems it through his people as we show love even to our enemies. So David worshiped God in the midst of his enemies. And David entrusted his enemies to the Lord. And this allowed David to be filled with thanks toward God. How much more reason then do we have on this side of the cross to give thanks to God who while we were still his enemies, he gave us his son. In Christ, we have so many blessings. And if we, like David, keep our hands toward God as we consider the work of God's hands, as we try to be continually and perpetually aware of God's presence, We will not become distracted by our enemies. Rather, we will become consumed with a new desire in Christ to love them, that they might turn from being our enemies to being our brothers and our sisters in Christ, giving us even more reason to give thanks to God as he continues to call people to himself. And just as a side note, if we can learn to do this with our enemies, how much more will that improve our relationships with people who aren't our enemies? people who are friends, people we just have differences with, with our family, with our loved ones. Let's pray. Lord, I'm thankful that your ways are higher than our ways. 
I'm thankful that you call us to things that don't make sense to the world. And I'm thankful that you give us the power and the Holy Spirit and the ability through faith to do these things that seem so otherworldly. Lord, as we prepare to take this supper, we're thankful for a spot at the table. We're thankful for the reminder that you give us in Scripture that you actually set a table for us in the midst of our enemies. And that's the table that we go to as we take the supper this morning. Lord, your presence is more important than anything. I'm thankful that we're allowed to be aware of what's going on and be honest about it, but I pray in our honesty that we're filled with faith and that we give these things to you. Lord, I genuinely pray for anyone here this morning who has enemies that they are distracted by. And I pray that they would entrust them to you as they entrust themselves to you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1 Corinthians 11, we hear uh, almost the same thing we heard in Luke 22. And Paul says to the church there as he's teaching them how to take the supper, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks... He broke it and said, this is my body for you. Do this in remembrance of me in the same way. Also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So as we look back and as we look forward, I want to encourage you to do two things as we distribute the elements. One, I want you to give thanks. Not just because it's Thanksgiving. I want you to give thanks because while you were enemies of God, he reached out and showed you love. And then I want you to pray about how you can do that to others. Let's distribute the elements.